Hello and welcome to this webinar discussion about regenerative food systems in Africa. My name is Toby Webb from Innovation Forum and delighted to be holding this webinar in association with BioCrop Science. And today we're going to be discussing some of the scaling solutions to empower smallholder farmers with some experts that work on this every day. Over the next hour or so, we're going to attempt to uh, look at some of the, the barriers preventing smallholders from implementing sustainable farming techniques. But more importantly than that, we're going to focus on solutions. It's very easy to sit around talking about problems, and people are absolutely brilliant at telling us the problems we've got. We're all good at it. Let's talk much more in this next hour about solutions and what we can do about it. Because despite all the doom scrolling that we can do on our newsletters, there's an awful lot of great innovation happening out there in the world and some really interesting solutions starting to scale. So we're delighted that joining us today to talk about exactly that and to get some of your questions is Evelyn Musioka, the Strategy Lead for Africa at Biocrop Science, Anthony Kiyoko, who's the CEO of the Cereal Growers Association in Kenya, Sheila Kano, Sustain Africa, the Regional Manager of Sustain Africa for the African Fertilizer and Agribusiness Partnership, and Sheila wins the award for longest job title on the panel. Well done, Sheila. And finally, Alan Johnson, Senior Operations Officer of the International Finance Corporation, the private sector arm of the World Bank. They're not going to introduce themselves in depth. Instead, they're going to talk much more about what we're going to do about some of these challenges that we face. And of course, we'll do a bit of framing of that. We have run one of these before. This is part two. So I'll focus on farmers episode one. It was focused on European farmers. That's available on the Innovation Forum podcast stream and website. Just search for Innovation Forum on your podcast app and you'll be able to find that. We're really looking forward to a constructive conversation. This is what Innovation Forum does. We call ourselves a platform for change, a platform for engagement. We bring together experts like this and your good selves to discuss these issues, find solutions, and try and co-create how they can be scaled. Let me turn over to Veronique Schmidt, Head of Communications, Europe, Middle East, and Africa from Biocrop Science, just to give us some context as, as to why we're here today and why Bayer is supporting this kind of effort. So, Veronique, welcome, and over to you for some opening comments. Thank you so much, Toby, and a warm welcome as well to our panelists. Um, it's a very exciting moment again. You said it, Toby. It's the second uh, Focus on Pharma series. Building on some previous conversations we already had in a different place um, in Europe, but really, you know, why why are we here? Why are we doing this? Um, I think it really goes back to a, a fundamental conviction that we know, uh, like many of you, that in order to drive systemic change in the food value chains, it takes all of the stakeholders. It takes uh, all of the players, uh, and. When we look at how we want to drive that change further, we also know that there's already a lot of innovations, a lot of partnerships out there. When we look at what we do, we focus very much on the farmer and anything we want to drive, you know, we believe strongly has to have a benefit for the farmer. They provide us with crops, with food. They are facing challenges and constraints in very many places. And so at Bayer, what we want to do is create this engagement space 
where we can talk with other companies, other organization, initiative leaders about how can we use the um, successful innovations that we already have? How can we have the partnerships, you know, that help us build a more robust uh, smallholder ecosystem since we're focusing on Africa today? How can we use those better and more? And you said it all. It's really about scaling um, while individual companies and organizations are working on the innovation. So I'm really looking forward to hearing more of the panelists talk about what they see is working well. And hopefully we can you know, grab some ideas, some thoughts around how to continue that conversation and maybe perhaps who knows even get into a constructive project where we can really have more smallholders benefit of what is already working in a much more meaningful way for their livelihoods. So with that, I'm handing back to you and I'll be very carefully and excited uh, in listening to what I'm going to hear. Veronique, thank you so much. Very much looking forward to hearing from you, Evelyn. Now, I have a question for you, which has got some buzzwords in it. Farmer-centric, ecosystem-led. Uh, we have to be careful we don't have too much jargon. But what is, by a crop scientist approach, to regenerative agricultural transformation? I think we all know what farmer-centric means, but I know you can tell us more about how we can do this in an ecosystem way. So let's let's break it down. What do we mean by that, Evelyn? And, and welcome. Yeah, so thank you so much, Toby. And uh, just uh, zeroing into your question, Toby, um, you know, when we think about a farmer-centric um, ecosystem-led approach, we are looking at a collective commitment, which brings together various value chain actors to sustainably enhance the economic and the social well-being of our small order farmers. And of course, uh, this brings together, you know, capabilities of diverse stakeholders, who are, you know, uh, zeroing in to address the various farmer pain points which we see with our smallholder farmers, but also above that, also addressing the various, um, you know, gaps which we see uh, within the specific value chains which our farmers, um, you know, currently engaged in. And uh, we, we see an ecosystem approach um, enabling us to collectively empower smallholder farmers to achieve better harvests, you know, when you think about uh, more farmer incomes, but also at the same time, you know, just taking a moment just to pause and really think around how do we build resilient food systems and at the same time also achieve uh, net benefits um, for nature. And um, a, a very important question is why the ecosystem approach, um, you know, just like you valued And uh, when you think uh, about it, Basically, we are looking at uh, food production having to increase by 50% to feed a population of 9 billion people by 2050. And this means that, uh, you know, agricultural production will be under intense pressure. And uh, of course, now this brings us to a conversation around how does regenerative agriculture transformation becomes critical in shaping production mechanisms um, going forward. And uh, we, we take a pause back to really recognize the critical role that our small order farmers are playing today. Uh, number one to enhance um, the, the continent food security. When you think about Africa, you think around food security and also appreciating not just in Africa, but just uh, around the world, uh, small order farmers are responsible for 80% of total food production in our developing countries. And at the same time, also just recognizing that it's not without the challenges because our small order farmers today are facing the large scale challenges 
just like the rest of the world. We've seen um, harvest losses, uh, which are resulting from um, impacts of climate change. We've seen uh, experience, um, we've experienced that in Africa with floods. Uh, we've seen prolonged uh, droughts. Again, on top of that, we've seen increased uh, disease and pest pressure. We are talking about fall armyworm, uh, mesolithal necrosis disease. We've seen locust invasion, um, you know, the last, um, you know, few years or behind. And also we've seen shrinking arable land you know, also as urbanization continue to accelerate. And therefore, that's why a conversation around economic, uh, I mean, ecosystem-led approaches becomes very critical because uh, with economic-led approach, we are able to, you know, enhance agricultural production and management and really offer a transformative viable option to sustainably increase agricultural productivity across more other markets in Africa. And of course, at the same time, you know, secure sufficient quality food and feed, while at the same time also thinking around how do we continue to balance our nature, um, I mean, our natural ecosystem as we continue to see the pressure which comes in uh, from all these factors. And um, the conversation we've been thinking around is how do you actually reach um, that uh, transformation? And there are a couple of uh, thoughts uh, which, um, you know, we, we put in place. And number one is just thinking around um, regenerative agriculture, which simply means we are going to continue to produce more with less. But again, um, you know, for us to sustain, you know, that growth, that need for food and feed, we also need to continue to restore more. And again, also, it's just taking also a step back and really zeroing into specific value chain and appreciating the farmer journey to better address the challenges impacting that sustainable um, uh, optimal production. And there are key elements which we know will be able to drive you know, that agricultural transformation. One of it uh, being um, allowing um, farmers to really access uh, the right innovation, the right technologies, to be able to increase the yield and not just even having these innovations available to them, but also for farmers being able to really access them, to afford them and be able to utilize them um, in the right uh, manner. Today in Sub-Saharan Africa, we know that um, our, our average, for example, corn production stands at uh, 1.9 metric tons per hectare, which is 50% less than what an average large-scale farmer, you know, within the same, you know, regions um, will achieve. And therefore, we have a very big opportunity for us to accelerate um, that production, the yield gaps, uh, which we are seeing um, with a small order farmer. But again, also for us to be able to do that, we need to combine that uh, with the right extension services that deliver a wide range of advisory services, including, you know, the basics of um, general agricultural practices. We are talking about sustainable management of soils through practices that increase uh, organic matter content and also the entire conversation around how do we bring in subject of integrated pest management. But also, again, also thinking around affordability. And this is where conversation around building financial access models for the majority of our small order farmers who today, uh, we know that our rural farmers, majority of them are currently not, uh, not banked. So just thinking around accessibility and ensuring how do we improve the small order profitability. And of course, also that comes in with a conversation of the interventions which we bring to our small order farmers around access to markets and ensuring that uh, they can attain the, uh, the critical profitability.
that, uh, that you are looking at. So for me to conclude on your question is uh, what is the role of uh, Bear today? And um, for us, uh, what we are looking at is being at the forefront of really championing this transformation towards regenerative agriculture conversation. And again, it goes back just to my earlier statement where the thought process is how do we produce more and how do we restore more uh, going forward? And of course, for us to be able to do that, again, we continue to allow small order farmers really access the right innovation, the right technologies, you know, and ensure that uh, they are able to mitigate, of course, the pain points and the um, challenges which comes also with the effects of climate change. And of course, driving conversation around conservation agriculture practices, which also are very positive, um, you know, net impacts when you think about uh, the nature outcomes. But also we know we cannot do this by ourselves. So this is where collaboration efforts you know, comes into play, where we are talking about collaboration between our private, our public sector, with our key stakeholders, with our partners, you know, just to scale, you know, advisory services, which really address key messages, you know, around best practices, stewardship, you know, and also just preservation and restoration of biodiversity. And uh, these actually include just uh, simple topics around how do you manage your crop rotation, you know, your intercropping, your integrated pest management, and of course, uh, these are some of the expected outcomes which we are looking at uh, driving forward and then continue together to champion the food security agenda for improved farmer incomes. And of course, that we know as long as you're improving the farmer incomes, you are impacting uh, livelihoods um, in many other ways but also at the same time, also continue to deliver, you know, the net benefits um, to nature. So the conversation around regenerative agriculture remain core uh, as part of, um, you know, our conversation. And of course, that will be shaping, um, you know, our vision of future farming as we deliver on our mission of health for all and hunger for none. Evelyn, thank you. I have one minute to ask you a question before we move on to Sheila. Yep. At the Innovation Forum, we've been doing this stuff for a long time, convening companies and stakeholders, and it felt, I think, that the terms of sustainability, conservation, restoration, these are great words, but it, it sort of felt to us things had got a bit stale. And then regenerative seems to have come along in the last few years. I know the concept's been around for a long time, but regenerative seems to have really got people excited about a positive, forward-looking agenda rather than a more defensive one, which we perhaps had before. Is it your sense where you work across Africa that, that government, for example, that you deal with, that they see that the same way? I would say yes, in the sense that, um, you know, it's the government agenda to put uh, food security in the core of all conversations. So basically, every government will want, um, you know, their citizens uh, to be food secure. And of course, um, you know, the conversation around how do you continue, um, you know, producing more, uh, conserving more, and of course, just thinking around the future generation, I mean, becomes in um, core. And of course, uh, we've seen a lot of acceleration around climate talks and of course i think uh you know confidently i can say yes it's in the interest of every stakeholder including the public sector uh to be able you know to drive this conversation and i think uh, this is where you know key partnerships comes in just to ensure you know that dialogue that conversation really really you know takes shape and uh continue ensuring um you know we are shaping uh the, the, that conversation and especially for africa
Africa, where we are seeing a lot of, um, you know, we, we are looking at a very uh, increased uh, growth in population, but also basically also seeing a lot of young people coming into place. So I think, uh, yes, it's critical. I think it's part of the agenda. And of course, I think uh, everybody, you know, is looking at how do we make our nation's food secure amidst us, of course, other disruptions which we've seen in our markets, including what we saw uh, with COVID-19. Thank you, Evelyn. We've certainly noticed Innovation Forum, we've probably convened 2,000 companies mm -hmm. this year, asked them what the words are that are making a difference in the boardrooms, in the supply chains. Two words, regeneration and resilience. And I think you've perfectly outlined how the ecosystem's <laughs> approach can drive those things. So thank you. Sheila, welcome. And really looking forward to hearing some comments from you about partnerships, capacity building, and how we actually start getting on with this really important work in a more joined up way. So Sheila, welcome. And over to you for some opening remarks. Thank you so much, Toby. It's exciting to be here today. Partnerships. We keep hearing the word partnerships. And sometimes I feel people talk about partnerships, but do they really actually go through with what they call partnerships? When you look at the smallholder farmer, and actually not just the smallholder farmer, even the commercial farmers, there's a there's a what we call the missing middle, uh, the working farmer, those who are employed eight to five and farm on the weekend. There is no attention given to that cadre, and I think we need to start looking at them because I believe they are the next game changer in this equation. When we look at partnerships, as Evelyn just said, you know, private, public, we have development partners as well. We have, you know, the large food companies that are coming into the continent, into the different countries. We have cooperatives. We have so many ways in which we can reach smallholder farmers, the financial institutions, insurance companies. There's a whole array. Uh, there's the talk of inputs. But first, if the soil is not right, your inputs are not going anywhere. Without the right soil, you can bring the best uh, products from uh, bear, the best seed with, you know, the highest uh, productivity. But if the soils are not right, and if we don't have the right fertilizer as well, and the right crop protection, you will not optimize that harvest. So looking at, uh, we've begun seeing companies, I think, begin to understand that. And uh, at AFAP, we've been able to work with Bear in a couple of countries, and I'm just going to name Malawi as one, where companies like Bear are beginning to step in. They are stepping in and saying, we are not going to wait. We know that the government provides uh, extension services, but is it enough? The private sector has begun, you know, stepping into that role as well and providing support to not just the farmers, but the SMEs that serve farmers as well. So the, the, the chain, and it's fragmented, there's so many partners that need to come together. Uh, I've spoken about very many of them just now, financial institutions, input companies, off-takers, finance players, insurance players, those in the soil health, those in the R&D, the government. How do we bring everybody around the table? Because I, I think when we talk about partnerships, we are not holistically seeing the partnerships at that full scale. How do we get private sector companies to, in terms of inputs, we have seed companies, fertilizer companies, we have those that work with the soil. How do they all come together to ensure that at the end of the day, that 1.9 metric tons of maize translates into four, just four tons. If we have four tons uh, as the average in Africa, we will stop importing a lot of the food. When we look at the inputs into Africa, three stand out. Three, we're importing fuel, fertilizer, and food. Fuel, like we can understand, but when you're importing high fertilizer and high food, Africa needs to choose a struggle. And it is through partnerships that would be able to lower the imports of food 
and maybe increase fertilizer, but ensure we also have the right fertilizer for the right crop and the right site, with the right seed, with the right advice. But all this needs different players with the finances. And uh, I'll, let me give a case example of the work we've been able to do in Malawi, working with Bayer for the last uh, three years. And um, we started because we have SMEs that work at the last mile. We have farmers still traveling 50 kilometers to access input, 100 kilometers. Why is a farmer traveling 100 kilometers to access 2 kg bag of seed and, you know, 250 kg bags of, uh, of fertilizer? That gap needs to be closed. So even the SMEs that work with the, agro, uh, with the farmers, agro-dealers at this point, need to be empowered. The retail agro-dealer, they are part of this equation. If they are not empowered because they are the last mile, they are the interface, direct interface with the farmer in terms of the inputs, in even extension. We really need to ramp up uh, agro-dealers also being extension service providers. They can provide the inputs, extension service through not just themselves, but experts who work with them, diploma holders, or those who understand agronomy. So they're able to provide advice from the shop and in the field. And getting farmers to save, we keep talking about the financial equation. It's not all about borrowing. They can also save for inputs. And we've been able to showcase that working with Bayer, that farmers are actually able to save all year round to be able to access their inputs. How do we turn that around? Instead of a farmer having to, you know, borrow, why can't they save and buy at the end of the year? We right now in season and we have very many farmers accessing inputs through savings. So the, the conversation needs to, you know, be taken to widen up. And we are calling upon private sector, fertilizer companies, seed companies, CP, come together, financial companies, you know, uh, insurance, come together, bundling. How do we bundle these services to farmers through SMEs at the last mile? How do we provide support to the missing middle, the working farmer. They are bankers, they're in the corporate world, but they're also farming. They're telephone farmers, but they are farming. And I interact with very many of them and they call me and always say, make use of an agronomist. Well, they could be a very big game changer because they understand the technologies. They get why we need to do all this. They have larger lands, larger parcels of land, maybe between 20 and 100 acres, and they're able to improve productivity when you provide the right advice. Who is going to step up and say, as we provide services to, you know, to the smallholder farmer, the missing middle, how do we address the gap with the missing middle to bring them along with us so that they too can contribute to the to the food uh, challenge that we're having? How do we get this, this cadre to support input substitution such that we have more tonnages? With them who are educated, I can assure you, they'll test their soils, they'll get prescriptive fertilizers, they'll get the right seed, they'll get the right advice, and they have finance. How do we bring them into the equation in this partnership? How do we bring all, who is going to take the step and say, companies come together? We've actually seen through FTMA efforts, that's Farm to Market Alliance, the ability to be able to bring in the development partners, we've seen the input companies and all that. And trying to work together. How do we get more of those models with the government on board? How do we support SMEs? At the end of the day, if the smallholder farmer produces crop acts, you know, uh, with high inputs, or they are unable to even afford this, we are not going to go anywhere. We'll keep talking about this 1.9 yield. How do we double the yield? Through partnerships that are actually built for sustainability. How do we all work together, come together, so that we're able to showcase partnerships such as what Bayer has done with AFAP in a number of the countries, being able to show that we can work with SMEs 
that support distribution and also offtake and also the advice because a lot of the issues also dwell around advice the right extension service material do we have you know the right extension going to all farmers or every farmer is getting their own different material those are the kind of questions but at the end of the day if we don't push these partnerships our yield will remain at 1.9 Right. Let's all challenge ourselves as partners. Let's go to four tons, and then we take it up from there. Sheila, thank you. One of the solutions I've heard positive to the many questions that you've raised there uh, is the idea of looser groups of farmers collaborating, not perhaps going as far as the, co- as the co-op mechanism, but collaborating around everyday things, covering each other's backs, as you might say, looking after each other. In, in, a, in a form that allows them to access these things without bogging them down in a formal governance structure. Do you see that as a parcel solution uh, to, to, to enable them to try and receive some of these last mile solutions in a more efficient way? Yeah, when you're organizing groups, you're able to get the best of everything, the best of inputs. You can negotiate because you're buying at bulk. You can negotiate for storage. You can negotiate for markets. And uh, when we look at, uh, again, the missing middle farmers, they're able to do this if they are channeled appropriately. And uh, we need to start paying attention to that. We've actually seen farmers come together to do that, and it's doable. And we also need to uh, also factor in commercial farmers playing a big role in supporting the middle, missing middle and smallholder farmers through providing advice, through having field days on their farms and you know showcasing the innovations. Why can't we also bring them along with us to walk this journey? partners it's doable and they can if we all work together we'd be able to get there great thank you sheila we are now going to turn over to anthony kyoko ceo of the cereal growers association well what are some of the farmer-centric solutions you've seen to some of the challenges that we've been discussing uh, thank you toby and uh, uh, fellow panelists great conversation so far and uh, let me just build on what uh, both evelyn and sheila have mentioned the all idea about partnerships, because I think both of them have uh, touched a bit about that. But also to quickly mention that one of the things that I see uh, coming on board in conversations with farmers and partners that we work with is a realization that there has to be a little bit more focus on what the farmer actually needs. In the past, there has been solutions that have been formulated or fashioned and they've ended up being uh, unpopular with the farmers, if you may want to say so, but also, more importantly, um, solutions that have only lasted for as long as there's someone who is pushing or putting some money behind it, and the moment they are not there, then it all comes to a stop, and that's a really wasted effort, and I'm, I'm happy to see that uh, the conversation now is changing a bit, and also that is also leading us to solutions that have... Uh, the farmer context in mind, but also that is helping for uh, technologies to be deployed more appropriately, which is a great thing to see. And I think we're going to be seeing more about this. Now, uh, a number of the solutions certainly have been mentioned by both Sheila and uh, Evelyn in some way, but the greatest one, in my view, one of the solutions that I've seen uh, that's working quite well, and I'll be giving a few examples, as, even as I mentioned, it is partnerships. And partnerships, the way we see them happening today is that 
you we we look at the farmer, we look at what it is that is ailing them, we look at the people who are willing to come in and play, but also more critically look at what role can government then play. Because in a lot of situations we've seen one of the barriers that keep the private sector from coming into partnerships with farmers, sometimes uh, issues that have uh, that have everything to do with government, for example, investing in uh, providing the correct infrastructure, laying out the correct policy and the regulations. And so we seeing this happening. For example, we talked about um, you know, part of the resilience that you'd want to see in food systems or what you'd want to see in a regenerating food system is a working market, for example. And we have had many conversations whether it's about inputs or whether it's about uh, output markets, where we are seeing government providing some uh, support infrastructure, which then leads to either contract farming taking place or some major anchor buyer coming into a value chain and promote it. And, and, and for example, just so that uh, our audience can get to understand what I'm getting to. For instance, in the Kenyan context, because I'm speaking from Kenya, we have had the value chains that have largely benefited from that. For example, the Sogam value chain, which is a great you know, climate resilient value chain. For many years, it was nothing to talk about until government provided incentives and an investor in the name of Diageo, East Africa Breweries here in Kenya, uh, you know, stepped in and invested. But then in turn, they got uh, some tax incentives so that they can get to invest in this value chain and in turn create opportunity for thousands and thousands of farmers to engage in this value chain. And we have similar partnerships, for example, in input access. Now, the other thing that is also associated with that is uh, enhanced use of digital solutions. And in Kenya, there has been a lot of effort around that. Uh, we just talked about how do we improve on the you know, productivity of farmers. The 1.9 metric tons per hectare that Sheila has uh, mentioned severally. And we know that part of what has been ailing productivity away from climate change and uh, degraded soils and the other technical issues is sometimes lack of information. And the lack of information is not so much that the farmer doesn't and know what to do. Sometimes it's about the timeliness of the information that they need to get. And therefore, some of the other solutions that we see working quite well for the farmers, including uh, include better use of technology or the media, for example. We have, uh, especially in Kenya, we're going through a period of floods. And one of the things we've done as an organization is to come up with a messaging app that uh, we've partnered with an organization and we are able to provide on a weekly basis information about weather for specific farmers so that they can then make better decisions based on when it's expected that they are going to get rates, the projected amounts that they are going to get. And the feedback we're getting even this early in the season is great. And we want to see that. The other thing that we have also seen in that same space of a better use of media and data is uh, in uh, helping farmers through, uh, you know, for example, uh, the available solutions that we have. We have WhatsApp, we have, uh, you know, simple videos that we have used in the past. 
A case in point would be a few years ago when there was an outbreak of uh, fall armyworm in Kenya, for example, and it was also during the time of COVID-19 and there wasn't much movement by many of us, including extension workers. And we were able to use simple videos through WhatsApp and the local uh, agents who were with the farmers at the grassroots level. And this was also quite handy. So when you look at all this, this tells you that there's a shift in how things are going. But then also other solutions that we are seeing and that have everything to do with the private sector investments. We have, for example, seeing um, you know, new uh, products in the market, for example, solar powered uh, irrigation kits. We've seen um, uh, great efforts and investments in production of biogas. These are all issues that are able to support the agenda of uh, you know, regenerating uh, food systems. There could be a few more, but uh, we'll probably get a chance to state them as we continue. Thank you, Toby. Thank you, Anthony. That's really interesting. What are the conversations you're having about the role of carbon and sequestration where you are? I mean, someone has posited to me recently that what's called insetting, I don't know if you're familiar with insetting, you know, the idea of sequestering your carbon emissions in your supply chain, not in a forest in a faraway land. This idea of insetting is, is that a financial mechanism for regen. And I just wonder, where, where does carbon play a role in the conversations you're having? Because it, it sounds like a lot of the practices you've talked about could be very helpful for, for, for others looking to, to account for carbon sequestration outside where you are. Is it is it still some years away or is it something that's really of interest in helping create a revenue stream to fund Regen? It's something that is uh, picking up. Uh, we have as an organisation and also uh, looking at the East African coast, uh, you know, situation, it's something that is picking up and we've got largely what we call soil-based and then uh, tree-based as um, carbon uh, credit uh, market. We have conversations uh, with some of the players in this space, and we think it could be a solution going forward. The key thing at this stage would be to ensure that there is a better understanding of what it is that uh, needs to be done, but also, more importantly, the primary actors, in this case, the smallholder farmers and farmers generally, to understand how it is that they can come into play and also how they can benefit and to ensure that there is equity in how the benefits from such trade uh, permeates to the actors. Thank you. Yes, that's an absolute key theme. Who owns the carbon uh, and what benefit do they get to it? And that balance between the nation state, the landowner or user and, the, and those sourcing the products. That's something that we are discussing constantly with companies. And I'm Pleased to say things are improving. So uh, let's hope in a, in a couple of years, Anthony, we can come back and see how close we are to getting payments down to farmers for enhancing land as well as producing the food we need. Thank you. Alan, let me turn to you. You know, where's the regen conversation at IFC? Finance always wants measurable results. So how are we going to know when we've got somewhere? And then in more detail, for the time we have, I'd love to know what are some of the tools you're seeing to kind of get Regen going at scale. Alan? With Regen, I agree. It, it's got this general sort of positive um, vibe to it, which is great. But I think there's also a risk of it being the latest trendy topic. You know, it's the now it's taken over where climate smart agriculture used to be. And there is this risk of it, be, you know, 
being open to a bit of greenwashing, especially if it's very ambiguous about what it actually means. So, yeah, in answer to your question, we're very, you know, there's a lot of corporate interest in regen ag. We're interested in it. But I think, yeah, part of it is exactly that, what you just um, said. What does it actually mean? Because it's not currently a standard, you know, like Bonsucro or SRP. It's actually a framework. So, you know, getting alignment and common understanding of this is actually going to be pretty important. I think, again, because it's very new and, you know, people like the terminology, um, there's also this, you know, problem of everyone trying to invent their own regen ag framework. And I think it's important for us to kind of collectively coalesce around, you know, some some of the emerging ones. And the ones that we've been looking at are, let's say, with side platform, they've got that, you know, regenerating together kind of thing, and then regen 10. And what I would say at this, it's a bit like the carbon markets, you know, it's kind of forming. But to me, those would be, say, two of the ones that we could coalesce around and, and really get some meaning to this because obviously you know we act we actually want regenerative practices to take place so it's not just a matter of of the labeling in that sense now having said that you know i think it's it's great that there's more emphasis on say you know soil health and the kind of the the resource base that we're dealing with but i also and this is particularly true in the african context we can't lose sight of the livelihoods side of this as well so it's it's a balance actually between you know the the positive environmental benefits and then making sure livelihoods is in there as well and i think the other thing that we are very conscious of is you know and meetings like this are guilty as others smallholders are often just lumped together as one entity and i, I did like the way sheila tried to pit, you know segment the market if you like and i think that's very true for smallholders not all smallholders are going to go with us on this journey towards sustainable agriculture. There's, you know, different types of smallholders, some more or less able to change and all of this kind of thing. And I think the vision, yeah, you know, we try and focus on those farmers who see farming as a business. And I guess now it's seen at farming as a sustainable business as well. So I guess there's that um, dimension to it. So, you know, I think what I'm basically saying is ultimately, we've got to achieve that balance between, you know, regenerating the resource base, but also making sure those who are stewards of the farms, um, you know, actually can earn a decent living from this. And I think that has been really missing from a lot of the, um, you know, the enthusiasm about the, you know, the, the regeneration part of it. But let's, you know, not forget about the, um, the productivity side. Um, so I think you also wanted to swing to solutions. So I think from my perspective, you know, we're very, we've actually got a, got a lot of people working on um, sustainability linked financing right now, which I think is very exciting. And so that's where maybe there'll be some, you know, blended finance or other sources of finance, which are actually linked to the achievement of measurable sustainability outcomes. So I think this is, you know, it's an emergent class, if you like. And I think I see a good future in this. The early uptakers have been much more on the kind of infrastructure side, and there's been relatively little in agriculture. So I would like to see agriculture becoming more of a beneficiary of sustainability-linked financing. 
And then I think the other sort of solution area that I see has already been mentioned, but I think the role of technology and yeah, this is not just the improved inputs, which I think has already been mentioned um, quite a bit, but also, you know, um, on the digital side. And I think for me, it links very much to the regen ag agenda, because I think with technological advances, we've been able to look at traceability, the verification side, I think is a lot um, easier, remote sensing, optimizing resource use, all of that, which is kind of enabled by technology. And I think that's very exciting and definitely can play a positive role in terms of achieving Regenag. In addition to this balance of the resource management and the livelihoods, I think I really do agree with what others have said about we've got to look at this issue holistically. And it's just a great coincidence. Um, we've actually just produced a book on this very topic. It's called Working with Smallholders, and it's a handbook for firms wanting to build sustainable supply chains. It's, it's just out right now. And that really goes into the whole holistic approach in 400 pages of detail, which is more than we can cover now. But uh, let me leave it there. Thank you. Alan, thank you so much. Yes, we put a link to the book. I'm sure it'll be fascinating reading. And I think it was a great point about the idea of lumping all smallholders together and how we shouldn't do that. And Sheila did a great, great job there doing some separation. A, qu a quick comment before I turn to Evelyn for some brief comments before Q&A about scaling. One of the companies we work with, an oil palm company in Indonesia, um, they actually make the business case for Regen using nutrition because they sit with communities and say, look at the nutritional profile and look what it can do for your child's health. And in some cases, that's been the number one driver for communities getting really interested in Regen Ag. Um, equally, the same company um, uh, and another one we know managed to cut land burning, not by talking about deforestation or even about smoke or even about climate change, but by talking about child lung health. And that was how they got villages to stop burning and then created incentives. So there's some really interesting alternative ways you can get people excited about it by talking about the real fundamentals. Um, you know, and it's easy to get lost talking about the future of carbon insetting for Kenyan cereal growers when actually, you know, nutrition is tomorrow um, <laughs> and carbon insetting might be in two years' time. So just a just a point um, that we've picked up from some of our, our the companies we work with. Evelyn, if I can ask you for just to be very brief for a minute or two, give us some more scaling solutions. Uh, it's been noted in the chat, actually, and maybe you can tackle this, that your earlier remarks talked about yield. And, of course, yield is very important. We know there can be a yield gap when we change practices um but give us give us some comments on on, on going beyond yield and, and and other solutions evelyn thank you so much and i think um you know of course uh you know when we think about um you know ecosystem regenerative agriculture one of the other key outcome um which of course um you know we are looking at it's also the social well-being you know and um of course social well-being uh, includes uh, the conversation around, um, you know, making agriculture also more inclusive. And this is where we are talking about the role which uh, women are playing, you know, and uh, basically, you know, we know today 66% of women are really directly employed um, within the agri-food sector. So technically, just ensuring that uh, women are really becoming really included um, in this conversation. And of course, uh, really think around um, the intentional approaches and interventions which we can bring to ensure that uh, we are strengthening and building the capacity for women and also youth. We know that uh, in Africa, agriculture has been perceived quite negatively, you know, uh, by the youth. And the question is, how do we 
make it more viable? How do we make it more profitable? And how do we ensure that, uh, you know, the generation to come with the youngest population we're seeing today, basically also the youth, um, you know, are getting uh, quite involved. And I think also there's been a lot of conversation around, um, you know, what is the public-private sector collaboration in just en enhancing, you know, infrastructure and also ensuring, you know, conversation along things like uh, extension services. Of course, the, you know, the, the public sector plays a very big role. We are talking around certification, you know, enabling new innovation coming into the market. And basically, these are key areas uh, where we cannot ignore. But also around that, uh, because we are talking about innovation, technologies, we are talking about accessibility of finance, you know, collaboration, savings, and all these discussions. Basically, also, it's just thinking around what is the policy framework that we have in place? What is our regulatory environment? And how does this evolve? you know, as also the future of agriculture keeps on shaping, you know, to the entire conversation around uh, regenerative agriculture. And basically, this is where we are looking at, uh, you know, supportive, um, you know, cross-sectorial policies to really mainstream and ensure that, uh, you know, the conversation is really based on the right policies for the benefit of all. Thank you, Evelyn. I think we'd all agree with that. Now, let's have a quick look at our Q&A. Who is our number one questioner? Well, it's Olivier Marchand. Well done, Olivier. Soils. Uh, there's a few comments here about soils. You know, you hear this stat that soils can sequester 20 more times more carbon than trees, but, you know, which soil, which trees, where, when, etc. One farmer I know in the southwest of England measures his soil carbon four times a year. Same plot, four different readings. Um, four different labs will give him four different diagnoses. Um, but we are getting there, right? It's very easy to say, oh, God, it's a problem. And it is. But we also know that technology, laboratories, methodologies, testing equipment for soil carbon is improving. We heard it just two weeks ago, one of our conferences in D.C., something to do with using chemicals uh, to measure soil carbon. Someone said 95% accuracy over the previous methodologies. So there is ground for optimism. There are grounds for optimism out there. Olivier is asking, um, what are the top practices that a farmer should apply to restore soil health that's kind of been answered by anonymous attendee underneath who says let's talk about cover crops no-till farming agroforestry organic fertilizers soil organic matter and soil health regenerative agriculture is about putting carbon back in our soils so that's a partial answer we all know the the, the shopping list for regen soil enhancement but i'd like to see what the panel would like to, to add on that Sheila, maybe I can come to you. What would you care to add on that point? It's very easy just to reel off a list, isn't it? Say, well, we must do that, and that will give us more soil carbon. But what, what, what would be your top tips for, for kind of getting this message across and getting practices, you know, getting the easy stuff done first? We realize that uh, there's a lot of pH issues. Liming could really be at the forefront of this. We find a lot of the soils acidic. And it can be resolved by liming. But lime in itself is a bulky product and uh, it's not very profitable. So how do we get governments, you know, working with farmers and PPP in, in, and get, uh, you know, more public work programs to be able to move this? We've been trying to we're trying to attempt to do that in, in the southern highlands of Tanzania and to be able to showcase that when you just get your your your, your pH right, you increase your production by at least 15%. So that in itself, if we can get the liming done, just as people understand their soils, then it's easier from there. 
it's easier to address the problem. But how do we work in Africa across the continent for governments to understand this? And then what solutions do we ensure that are brought on board that also are able to serve smallholder farmers at a larger scale? I'd go with lightning at this point in time. Thank you. Very quick question for you, Alan. How much credibility do you give these sort of above ground soil carbon measurements? Is, you know, you, I, I've met remote sensing companies who say that they can look at the first half centimetre from somewhere up there. Is that real? Uh, what do you regard as sort of credible measurements beyond just sort of lab samples of, of when it's enhanced? Yeah, so, I mean, I'm not a soil scientist. I'm not going to get into this, but I, I think fundamentally there has to be a credible way to, to look at it, which doesn't cost too much. I think one of the big problems of the whole carbon markets and even this, you know, getting monetizing regen is doing that in a in a cost-effective way. I mean, essentially, farmers need to have incentives to change practices and have, put more organic material onto the you know into the um onto their farms i think there's some nice circular economy ideas about how the waste from i think some of the the anchor clients that um anthony referred to can actually put back some of their waste products which actually go back to the soil as organic matter so i think there's a lot of kind of incentive issues there but yeah to me i mean okay the measurement i i don't really know the technical answer to it, but I think it has to be something that's cost-effective and scalable. And I think that's the that's the, what we're lacking right now. And then that has to translate into incentives for farmers to change their behaviour. Thank you, Alan. Yeah, it's a complicated area. I think the term I heard two weeks ago was electrochemical analysis. I have no idea what that means. It sounds impressive, but apparently it's very good. Um, we need to move on. Uh, Anthony, perhaps um, you could take this next question from Jerome. Um, solid business cases. Um, you know, everyone needs a business case, uh, particularly related to income. Now, we've heard some great comments about improving yield. Anthony, I wondered if you had anything you wanted to add on how we make the business case to improve smallholder farmer income with regenerative practices? Anthony? I think that's a broad question and really uh, not speaks to the idea that you cannot have one solution for everything. And that also sort of ties up with the earlier question that you had asked about what practices farmers should adopt. And the simple answer should be that a farmer's own context is going to determine what works for them. I've seen, for example, lots of farmers talk about or get to use a lot of organic matter and, uh, and fertilizer and get to use uh, cover crops and mulch. And when you get to the farmer and the way they farm and what is applicable in their situation is that those are not things that they can get to do. So I think to me, the correct advice should be, you know, get to look at every farmer, determine what works in their situation, what combinational practices can work. And a simple example I'll give you is this. In many areas in Kenya, uh, farmers uh, bring on their cattle to graze on the fields where they had a crop previously. To get them to change from that, and that they keep the cattle out of the field so that you can have some crop residue and then you can have some soil conservation uh, it's not structures that remain in place, some agroforest trees that you had planted to remain alive and also to end up um, you know, allowing the crop residue, which essentially they see it as uh, you know, fodder for their cattle during the drought periods. That takes a whole mind shift. And therefore, uh, just like in that case, when you talk about uh, the business cases that need to be put out for farmers, I think the first thing is to 
understand that it's always a long-term um, affair. And one of the disincentives in adopting regional agriculture, for example, you realize is in that uh, at the initial stages, maybe the first three, four, five years, there's going to be a yield dip. There's going to be, uh, you know, a period when they are, you know, they're harvesting much less, they are earning much less. How do you help them to navigate through that? How do you build that into a business case? I think it will require to really get in there, see what is it that uh, uh, that's working with the farmer and then determine the best case that you can put together for them. Thank you very much, Anthony. Evelyn, let me just turn to you for some closing remarks. Before I do, there's a report that we we published a couple of years ago written by Dr. Peter Stanbury, which we think is superb. It's free. And one of the ways we looked at funding the kind of changes you're talking about, Anthony, was if we can look at smallholder value change a bit more holistically, there are cost savings there, right? There's way too many middlemen or middle people, we might say. Look at cotton in Gujarat, up to seven middle people between the farmer and where the cotton needs to go. Now, they're all trying to make a living, and a lot of them aren't. So there are these inefficiencies there, which if we can try and cut through them with the collaboration that Sheila, Alan, and Anthony have been talking about, can actually deliver that ability for us to compensate for the yield lag uh, as we shift towards regen. So there are solutions out there. Do have a look at the, the chat function for the link to Alan's book and to the report we published. And Evelyn, let me turn to you for a minute or so of, of closing remarks before we finish. Evelyn. I think uh, the conversation and just uh, zeroing into the small order farmer is basically, I think, a conversation around um, how do we increase yields, how do we improve productivity, how do we increase, uh, I mean, increase the economic benefits for small order farmers, but also most importantly, how do we continue to just think around how do we mitigate the impacts of climate change and ensure at the end of the day, you know, we are working around, um, you know, preservation and restoration of our biodiversity. And I think uh, with the partners, um, who, part of the partners who are here, and basically a lot of stakeholders and other like-minded uh, stakeholders, basically this is something which we can champion um, within Africa. And I think uh, if we collaborate and continue to enhance this conversation, it's a win for a farmer. And basically we'll be glad just to ensure that um, we are moving that uh, you'd, um, you know, gap for a smallholder farmer, ensure that uh, we are attaining improved livelihoods. Well, we're at time. It's been fascinating. I've learned a lot. I hope you have too. Sheila, Alan, Anthony, Evelyn, thank you so much for your insights and your time over the last hour. A lot of work goes into preparing these webinars. Thank you so much for taking the time to share. Audience, I hope you found it useful. And I'd very much like to thank our colleagues at Bayer Crop Science for their support to make this happen. So thank you all and goodbye. 